All right, good morning listeners and welcome to this week's edition of News from the Drug War Front brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Minimisation and Advocacy. My name is Jeff, and my co-presenter is Marion. Good, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Well, isn't the sun shining this morning, but it's still cold out there. At least the sun's shining. Yeah. Mass. And we're here eventually. We're sort of having a bit of problem with timing and handing over at 10.30 exactly, but we don't like to cut off the ecological people because what they say is, you know, what we feel too. So it's legitimate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so if we're a couple of minutes late, it's only because we're giving them time to finish up. Yeah, we're being good uh, uh, colleagues. Colleagues, yeah. 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 Okay, uh, for those who aren't aware of what Karma is, it's a peer-based community-controlled drug user organisation with over two decades serving the ACT. Now, regrettably, the global policies of prohibition remain largely unchanged. So human rights abuses... And the stigmatising and discrimination of people who use drugs continues to take place. Um, we'd like to acknowledge the efforts of peers and activists who've contributed to the fight against the war on people who use drugs and reaffirm our commitment to con- continue to fight against the harms caused by prohibition in all of its manifestations. So essentially, with that big picture in mind, the, sh- the show also aims to inform and educate listeners about how we see prohibition as having failed and also promote the services um, provided by Karma and other alcohol and other drug organisations in the ACT. Yes, speaking of which, Karma provides a wide range of services, as regular listeners will know, such as client advocacy, peer treatment support, education information, creative arts, mentoring and referrals. The Karma office is still located in the Church's Centre, Shop 17, Level 1, 54 Benjamin Way in Belconnen. Its office hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday, um, the phone number is 62533643. Karma continues to run its Australia First Opioid Overdose Recognition and Response with Naloxone workshops. It also does brief interventions with individual clients, which means that over a period of about 10 minutes, you can talk to Damo or Dave, depending upon who's there at the time, and come away with a couple of doses of naloxone, the puffer spray, um, the spray, sort of the nasal spray. Um, you could have the power to save somebody's life, which is a really potent force. Look, it's one of the proudest achievements, it I think. It is a fabulous achievement. And I think another one that's coming up will be the... You Reach, know, Teach, the, Treat. The Reach, Teach, Treat project, which uh, Carmen's doing in collaboration with Hepatitis ACT. A fabulous project that is uh, incentivising clients or uh, peers to come and get them, their blood tested for hepatitis C, um, which is, happens on Wednesday mornings. Uh, Wednesday, 1 till 5, isn't it? 1 till 5, Hep- is it? Oh, I beg your pardon. With Chris? This is me just not listening. Um, there's a also, um, yes, actually, I'll just give you the number for that because I think that's important. 62306344 is hepatitis ACT and, of course, Karma is on 62533643. The next Muragadi workshop, which um, the connection's running for ATSI clients, is scheduled for the 29th of July, so that's a couple of weeks away yet, from 11.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. And the topic is on ice. So for information <clears throat> uh, or to book a place, call Monica or Eva Lee on 62533643. The next Naloxone workshop... Uh, is July the 27th. It's scheduled for July the 27th, but as we know, things uh, get subject scheduled and sometimes, yeah, mm. subject to COVID, really. Um, so to book a place for that, call Dave or Damo on 62533643. 
Karma can help people with can help people with a wide range of issues, including opioid maintenance treatment um, programs, so methadone, buprenorphine, or the new long-lasting injectable forms of buprenorphine known as Buvidal or Sublocade, support with treating hepatitis C, the availability of detox and rehabilitation services in the ACT. And the point about that is there aren't rehab oh. services in the ACT, which is a big problem. I think the waiting list is like five months and there was a woman on uh, Canberra um, Notebook, which is a Facebook site, um, on the weekend who said she couldn't find a bed anywhere with a treatment centre in the ACT, which is not surprising, but I think it's even harder, you know, New South Wales wide, uh, which I would refer people to go to. But if you're ready, you're ready. And really, sweetheart... you're not ready tomorrow, don't let it drag you down. It'll come back again. You know, the emotions that you need to be ready to give up using, it's just so hard. But when you get there, you get there. And you'll get there again. So please don't be too downhearted about it. And one of the big issues, Marin, is that there has to be more of an investment in Absolutely. a range of options for people. Absolutely. And not, you know, we're just sitting down and smelling the sewage down there and thinking, so what are they doing? Digging a hole and, you know, testing how much, how many drugs are being used in the community by testing the sewage, which is what we've reported on for the last few weeks the research information that's kind of testing wastewater, which is just sewage, let's face it. Mm. And why would they fund that and not treatment centres, treatment centre beds? It's just ludicrous. I I think it's a poor priority. Absolutely. But we know the non-government sector is like that. Yeah, We get whiffled around left, right and centre. We get underfunded. Look at 2XX. Gets underfunded, Mm. doesn't get its, uh, its staff are not treated well. Um, the non-government sector is like that too. If you're lucky enough to have an intervention, like somebody in the middle of you, an executive officer who stands between you and management, you're lucky. But some people don't. Anyway, look, I'll go on about karma rather than 2XX, but I just have to say we appreciate XX's uh, availability and it's uh, it's as a platform we're very proud to be part of it and mm. we'd like you to encourage people to become sponsors of 2XX or members of 2XX. Or donate some time. Or donate some time or some energy towards being involved with 2XX. Be a volunteer. Any support would help. Um, Any support. But also uh, we'd like to know that people like 2XX and like the podcast. Our show is available on podcast. Thanks largely to Muhammad, who works in the office here. But So we're very proud to be associated with 2XX, but we want double x to be proud of itself mm. and it's very difficult when staff aren't managed properly anyway i support with karma still has availability of detox and rehab services which i just said we haven't uh, wide-ranging negative impact of stigma and discrimination which is a pain negative uh, difficulties with getting access to proper pain relief or palliative care which has been going on forever and recently has become worse in all issues faced by people adversely impacted by prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. Yeah, too numerous to um, mention in one. Absolutely, <laughs> one although moment. I'll give it a red hot go, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> all right, the contents of this news from the Drug Warfront broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of the Canberra Alliance for Minimisation and Advocacy. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and does not promote illegal activity. 
Karma recognises that drug use happens, and as such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy, and community community development. Karma seeks to reduce the harms associated with drug use, as well as the harms associated with the criminalisation of drug use, through the provision of empowering programs that concentrate on community development, person-centred holistic healthcare, and equity of health service delivery for all people, which would be a lovely thing, yeah. All right, I think we'll go to a song, Matt. Um, Let's do that. Yeah, yep. Perfect Day, Lou Reed. One yeah, of my nice one favourites. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. It and, is. Um, hopefully uh, Kick off suits the mood. enthusiastically, yeah? Yeah. All right, that was Lou Reed and Perfect Day. It's coming up about quarter to 11. You were Jeff and Marion on um, News from the Drug War Front on 2XX FM 98.3 FM. And we've got a local story by Michael Moore that was actually published in the um, the freebie, the Canberra City News on July the 8th, Marion. Yes, I've read that when it was in, in the paper. I was really pleased to see it there. And Michael Moore, of course, has been a long-time He's been um, a health advocate. minister. Yeah, he's been, been a long advocate, long-time advocate for rational drug policy. Public Health Australia for years. When he was a minister at the ACT. That's right. And I remember... Um, one of our now um, deceased friends, um, Michael, um, went up to his office and actually um, had a hit in front of him, had an injection in front of him. To make a political point. To yeah. make the point that it's happening now and that people are doing it now. And Michael was so stunned by it. He just said, well, yeah, you know, it's your business and you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. But like- you know, what the risks that you're taking are. So he actually took it on board and... You know, as a result, he is still taking it on because he says that the rationality of the drug war is just doesn't exist. You yeah. know, there's no sense in it. Anyway. Yeah, he's a good man, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's entitled Zed's Poll Makes Canberrans Look Second Class and starts with a quote, there are, there are any number of examples on the internet of how to ask unbiased questions. Clearly, this was never the intention of Senator Seselja, writes political columnist mm. Michael Moore. Zed Seselja is senator for the ACT. His prime role should be to look after the people of the ACT who elected him. Um, His predecessor, Gary Humphreys, was the only Liberal Party politician during the Howard government to cross the floor to vote against his own party. He did so to ensure that the people of the ACT retain the same rights as people living in Australian states. Mm. Senator Seselja's latest effort is a very thinly veiled attempt to use a, quote, survey with a simple goal in mind. He's seeking to get community support to have federal legislation once again override ACT legislation. In doing so, he's preempting the outcome of an ACT Assembly's inquiry into MLA Michael Pedersen's Drugs of Dependence, in brackets, Personal Use Amendment Bill 2021. There is a precedent. The federal parliament has previously run roughshod over the right of the people of the ACT to make their own decisions. In the mid-1990s, their action removed the power of the ACT Assembly to legislate on the rights of individuals to choose to die with dignity. Mm. The very same parliament that had forced self-government on the ACT then removed powers based on their own moral righteousness. 20 years ago, the ACT and the Northern Territory were at the forefront of voluntary active euthanasia legislation when the federal parliament voted to change the self-government acts to limit their powers on such matters. Now Australian states are catching up with the territories. At the start of July... Western Australia became yet another state to commence its Voluntary Assisted Dying Act, 2019. The Federal Parliament has no power to override states in such matters. By doing so, the ACT and the Northern Territory in the past, it has made Territory people effectively second-class citizens. 
The use of leading questions and leading introduction are the hallmarks of the online, quote, survey presented by Zed Seselja. It illustrates the difference between himself and his predecessor, who prioritised the people of the ACT and was academically sound in his approach. Gary Humphreys recognised that his prime responsibility was to ensure that the people of the ACT, through their legislature, should be responsible for their own decisions. What a contrast with Zed Seselja, who is seeking support to override the same rights of the people of the ACT. Indeed. This so-called survey is introduced uh, with, in inverted commas, keep the ACT drug-free, that's a heading, illicit drugs like ice will be decriminalised under a plan being considered by Labor and the Greens. Please complete this short four-question survey to now have your say. Uh, the end of inverted commas, they want you to think, it goes on to say, they are being progressive, but their plan is actually incredibly dangerous for Canberra families. I mean, this is just the same um, rubbish and, yeah. that's been going on for 50 years, and it means nothing. There are any number of examples on the internet of how to ask un- uh, questions in an unbiased way. Clearly, this was never the intention of Senator Sazelja. If it was not for the introduction, his first question may have been considered less biased. Do you think federal laws should be used to stop decriminalisation of ice and other hard drugs? Um, the next three questions are blatantly biased. Do you, They are, do you believe the push from the left to decriminalise ice and other hard drugs is bad for families and public health outcomes? The second is, do you believe the push from the left to decriminalise ice and other hard drugs will lead to more violence in our community? The third question is, do you believe it's a bad idea with all that we need to focus on post-COVID-19 to decriminalise hard drugs? Pretty biased. You know, the obvious answer to those questions, you know... Yes, yes, and yeah, you know it's bad. Answer yes. It's, yeah, it's a self, obvious yes. Self-serving yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you answer the right way, I'll give you a tick. But Gary Humphreys would never have asked something like that. He would never have been that blatantly idiotic about it. He was a sensible man, Gary. Kate Carnell. I mean, Michael was actually the Minister for Health under In Kate Kate's Carnell's, yeah. and that was a Liberal That's right. coalition yeah. with an independent because he was an independent. Anyway, the article goes on, the Conservatives in the ACT have long been opposed to drug law reform, but that's, yeah, the like, certainly not since, it's after Kate came in. Uh, The Liberals in the ACT Liberal Party have had to take a back seat since the time of Kate Carnell and Gary Humphreys. Oh, well, do-do. This move by Senator Seselja undermines the Canberra Liberals in the ACT Assembly at a time they're just starting to look less conservative. The very first sentence of the Seselja survey tells part of the story. In inverted commas, keep the ACT drug-free. So that's what he wants. In what possible sense is the ACT drug-free? Prohibition of drugs has created so many more problems than the drug themselves. drugs themselves. Senator Seselja wishes to use this sort of survey to support his argument, I would say, for more prohibition and to make Territorians second-class citizens again. The best way to, to defeat this sort of biased and unconscionable approach is to respond to his survey and answer no, no and no. 
Michael Moore is a former member of the ACT Legislative Assembly, during which he was the Minister for Health, but he was an independent at that time. He's been a political columnist with the City News since 2006, and he thinks well and speaks well, yes. Michael. I've always been proud of him. In fact, in the old days, we actually rallied ourselves and went out to um, support him in an election campaign, mm. um, which is really quite unusual at the time because we're mostly kind of left-wing in a lot of ways, but when it came to Michael's, it was just sensible. And he's had a long-standing interest in public health. Of That's all. right. Yeah. He was very involved in the um, the combination of HIV, you know, the uh, networking of peer education organisations, the sort of uh, the AIDS Council, yeah, um, and Act Karma in as it was in its old manifestation. Anyway, it's an interesting article. And it does give you a bit of a lead on what not to do mm. or how to defeat Sazelja's so-called um, survey because it doesn't, you know, as a survey, it just doesn't doesn't cut it. It's not legitimate. It can't be taken as something that really asks Is the questions. Um, it's simply, yeah, yeah. It, it simply says, you know, these are the answers I would. It tells you what answers he wants. He yeah. says he wants you to say yes to his questions when really the correct answer is no. Quite a quick positive story before we go to the news. Um, it's from AAP, July 2nd, uh, Western Australian Police to Carry Overdose Treatment Drug. Yeah, it's a great thing, isn't it? This is awesome. About yep. 300 Western Australian Police will become the first in the country to be deployed with naloxone, a drug used to provide emergency first aid to people suffering from an opioid overdose. The 12-month trial program comes after a recent surge in drug overdoses and deaths in Western Australia. Naloxone is usually carried only by those involved in emergency health and crisis care or by drug treatment services. Police Minister Paul Papalia said there was always a risk police officers could be exposed to illicit toxic opioids in the course of their day-to-day work. Quote, the safety and welfare of all police officers is of paramount importance and taking part in this trial is another way in which we can better protect officers in the work they do protecting the community. Good point. As first responders, it may also provide an opportunity for officers to save the life of someone who was overdosed before medical help can arrive. Absolutely, and imagine the atmosphere between a police officer and the person he just saved if he'd saved their lives or she'd saved their lives. It's just... You know, I just think it really lays the fan work for good community liaison. I, I, I'm say well done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. WA. It goes on. Police Assistant uh, Commissioner Brad Royce said deploying naloxone with police was a logical decision, I would say so too, given the re- risks officers faced and the role they played in responding to incidents. Uh, quote, in many cases, police officers are the first on the scene in response to welfare checks or other tasks that result in a drug-impaired person being located, sometimes unconscious, and will likely be best placed to provide the early medical intervention, he said. It goes on, there have been several cases uh, in overseas jurisdictions where lives have been saved due to police officers being equipped with and trained to use naloxone. The trial locations across WA have been based on several drug-related indicators, including health data and the results of wastewater analysis. Again. That's from Australia, yeah, yeah. Australian Associated Press, AAP. So that's by Tim Dorn and the AP, July 2nd. It's a great um, innovation, though. I it's think. a really Good pos- on positive development, forward. and let's hope that it um, 
extends to other jurisdictions Indeed. in the near future. Because, look, naloxone only does one thing. And it does it well. Does yeah, it? it stops people from dying Yeah, on opioids. And that's what we want them to How? do. Don't die. How powerful. Stay to alive. Have... And I, I just think I'll just reiterate what I said before, Jeffrey, that the potency of that action, the relationship between a copper and an overdose survivor, because that copper has provided naloxone, simply by identifying somebody as having been overdosed on an opiate or an opioid, just a potent, uh, an enhancement, I guess, of the relationship between community and police. Yeah, it's I think just, it's positive in so many respects. I, you wait and see how they evaluate it. Yeah, I reckon the evaluations of that project are going to come out saying it's just improved, especially improved the relationship between police and, yes, and community. community. Especially because if they're given the puffers, which are just totally non-interventionist, like there's no needle in the buttock or since they came out with those nasal sprays, it's a really good idea. No injection, no intervention, simply a matter of sticking a thing up his nose and yep. there you go. Very easy it to works. administer. Easy to administer, no feeling like you're intruding on somebody's privacy, simply a matter of wanting to save someone's life. I just think it's a great idea. It's always so disheartening to hear stories of people that did fatally overdose for, for want Look, of naloxone. I'm horrified. People who, who knew how to do it, Jeffrey, but just either didn't or, or forgot. Forgot or... or... I don't know what it what yeah. it is that makes people not do the training that they have. What frightens them about sticking something, you know, a puffer up someone's nose and bringing them back to life? Why would you not want to help somebody live? I can't answer that. Can you? Surely you're not a peer if you if you do that if you perform don't perform that kind of behaviour. Yeah. How do you condemn someone to death simply by refusing to apply your knowledge? Because I find that obscene. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's there's nothing right about that. No. At all. This is all right. This uh, is completely right, I mean, not just all right. I mean, right in every manifestation, whichever way you look at it, this project is right. Yeah, absolutely. And I would like to see it expanded further. Absolutely. And um, we'll just do another quick plug for the workshops that Dave and Damo do. Absolutely. At Karma. And... Um, Six two five three three six four three is the number and to the call. The next one's the twenty seventh of July. I think it's at the early morning centre is the plan, but as you said, with COVID, um, daily just don't changes. Know. Yeah, um, we'll keep people appraised of any um, change in venue or if it gets Absolutely. postponed. Or... Yeah, we generally will. Um, there's a project coming up. Look, we might talk about that. Have we got time? Before the news, how far have we got to go? Well, by my watch, two minutes because the studio clock seems to okay. not what be working. What about that one down there? What does that say? Can you see it? 10.58, so we've got two minutes. Okay, so we've got two minutes. All right, there's another project, we think, coming up that uh, Monica will be um, providing. Yes. Um, Now, we've only just got the bare minimum of this, but it's information to give you. It hasn't actually started, and it's just in the planning phase now. It just sounds so exciting um, that I really want to be the first cab off the rank to let you know uh, that Monica's working on a project for women 
have been involved in, or have had the kids taken away from them by you know, welfare in Canberra and she wants to get some women together to meet and discuss the strategies for looking after yourself and getting basically getting your kids back from welfare. Oh, after wonderful. They've been taken. It just sounds so exciting. Yeah. And I you know, can't help but say, you know, that's a great thing to be doing and I think there'll be women out there desperate to know about this plan. But it's important that we focus on things like putting families back together, although we know that once a family's taken apart, yeah. you can never put it back together the same way as it was before. But you can All right, welcome back to this week's news from the Drug Forefront uh, on Community Radio uh, 2XX, 98.3 FM. And uh, we've got two uh, very interesting international stories, but um, we'll go to a song first. This is the classic uh, Pink Floyd track, Money. All oh, right, that was the Pink Floyd uh, classic. A marginally abbreviated version of money. Well, the last <laughs> little bit where they're just chatting yeah, at the just end. Yeah, just money. Don't yeah, need to hear All right, it's about ten past eleven and you're listening to news from the drug uh, war uh, front. Uh, yeah, but don't don't bank on that. <laughs> we're running on a kind of a variety of times in the studio today. Yeah, well, the, the normal studio clock has yeah, a piece it's, of paper. It's been over covered it. up yeah. and we're not sure about the one on the computer and Jeffrey's... Watch might be, may or may not be a couple of minutes early. And my phone's off, by the way, because I've got no charge on it. And I normally rely on that for the time. So, so forgive it, us if we're a minute or so yeah, if out we're a either way. Or so out, that's tough. Yeah. Oh, haha, we have the studio clock again. Da -da, studio it's 11, clock, 11. 11, 11. And we can say that with absolute confidence, confidence because we've just been pointed out to us. Awesome. Thank you Excellent. for that. Excellent. Thanks very much. All right. Um, as anyone who's heard the show uh, before knows, we do occasionally um, cover somewhat lengthy but big picture um, pieces that and talk this about... this is a particularly relevant piece, isn't it, Jeffrey? Well, well I think so. Yeah. Um, it's entitled, After 50 Years of the War on Drugs, What Good Is It Doing Any... any what Good Is It Doing for Any of Us? By Brian Mann, nationalpublicradio.org from the US. When Aaron Hinton walked through the housing... Uh, project in Brownsville on a recent summer afternoon, he voiced love and pride for this tight-knit but troubled working-class neighbourhood in New York City where he grew up. He pointed to a community garden, the lush plots of vegetables and flowers tended by volunteers, and to the library where he has led after-school programs for children. But he also expressed deep rage and sorrow over the, the scars left by the nation's 50-year-long war on drugs. What good is it doing for us? He asked. As the United States' harsh approach to drug use hits the half-century milestone, this question has been asked by a growing number of lawmakers, public health experts and community, community leaders. In many parts of the United States, some of the most severe policies implemented during the drug war are being scaled back or scrapped altogether. Here, here, can't mm. happen quick enough. Hinton, a 37-year-old community organiser and activist, said the reckoning is long overdue. He described watching black men like himself get caught up in drugs year after year and then being swept into the nation's burgeoning prison system. Quote, they're spending so much money on these prisons to keep kids locked up. They don't even spend a fraction of that money sending them to college or even to some kind of school. No. Hinton has lived his whole life under the drug war. He said Brownsville needed help coping with cocaine, heroin and drug-related crime that took root back in the 1970s and 80s. His own family was scarred. I've known my mother to be a drug user my entire life, he said. She chose to run the streets and left me with my great-grandmother. 
Four years ago, his mother overdosed and died after taking prescription painkillers, part of the opioid epidemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of American citizens. Mm. Hinton said her death sealed his belief that tough drug war policies and aggressive police tactics would never make his family or his community safer. Indeed. The nation pivots slowly as evidence mounts against the drug war. During months of interviews for this project, NPR found a growing consensus across the political spectrum, including among some in law enforcement, that the drug war simply didn't work. A quote, we have been involved in the failed war on drugs for so very long, said retired Major Neil Franklin, a veteran with the Baltimore City Police and the Maryland State Police, who led drug task forces for years. He now believes the response to drugs should be handled by doctors and therapists, not cops and prison guards. It does not belong in our wheelhouse, Franklin said during a press conference this week. Some prosecutors have also condemned the drug war model, describing it as ineffective and racially biased. Uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James quoted as saying, over the last 50 years, we've unfortunately seen the war on drugs be used as an excuse to declare war on people of colour, on poor Americans and so many other marginalised groups, she said in a statement sent to NPR. Um... Two House, oh, sorry, some prosecutors have also condemned the drug war models, or have I just done that one? I have. Two House Democrats have introduced legislation that would decriminalise all drugs in the US, shifting the national response to a public health model. About time, too. Uh, long overdue, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. The measure appears to have zero chance of passage, but at least it's been introduced, hey? But in much of the country, disillusionment with the drug war has already led to a repeal of some of the most punitive policies, including mandatory lengthy prison sentence for non-violent drug users. And it was those laws that led to so many, you know, the three strikes, you're out, you're in Ab- yes, prison absolutely. for life. It was, and... It's like add this to that to the other and you automatically get this outcome. Well, you know, one plus one doesn't equal five. Unless you add it to the three, that you, you, do you know what I mean? That their maths is just wrong, their logic is wrong. It's flawed in the biggest way. Yeah. In recent years, voters and politicians in seventeen states, including red-leaning Alaska and Montana, that's Republican for us, and the District of Columbia, have backed the legalisation of recreational marijuana, the most popular illicit drug, a trend that once seemed impossible. Last November, Oregon became the first state to decriminalise small quantities of all drugs, including heroin and methamphetamines. Many critics say the course correction is too modest and too slow. Quote, the war on drugs was an absolute miscalculation of human behaviour, said Cassandra Frederick, who heads the Drug Policy Alliance, a national group that advocates for total drug decriminalisation. She said the criminal justice model failed to address the underlying need for jobs, health care and safe housing that spur addiction. Indeed, much of the drug war's architecture remains intact. Federal spending on drugs, excuse me, much of it devoted to interdiction, is expected to top $37 billion this Imagine year. Imagine what could be done with that money Imagine, in harm reduction. Yeah, or... look, even a third of it, Jeffrey, could go to treatment. You know, just about every state in the United States could have a dedicated 
treatment centre uh, of, say, 50 beds that was funded by uh, income from the individuals that were residing then, but also a certain amount from the federal government. And you could give them a million bucks and they could establish a treatment centre and, you know, accommodate yeah. people for six, eight, ten months. And the outcomes would be monumental, especially if you're training people before they come out of those centres, yeah. you know, to go on to work. The US still. The article goes on. The US still incarcerates more people than any other nation, with nearly half of the inmates in federal prison held on drug charges. But the nation has seen a significant decline in state and federal inmate populations, down by a quarter from the peak of 1.6 million in 2009 to roughly 1.2 million last year. That's a big reduction. There's also been a substantial growth in public funding for health care and treatment for people whose drugs due in large part, for people who use drugs due in large part to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Quote, the best outcomes when you treat the substance use disorder as a medical condition, as opposed to criminalising that person and putting them, uh, putting them in jail or in prison, said Dr Nora Volkov, who's been head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse since 2003. Volkov said data shows clearly that the decision half a century ago to punish Americans who struggle with addiction was, quote, devastating, not just to them, but actually to their families. Yeah, that's an understatement, to be honest, isn't it, when you think of the harm done. Tell yeah. me if you want me to take over. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next uh, paragraph is from a bipartisan war on drugs to Black Lives Matter, and this is bringing it up to absolutely. More, um, I mean, we're fine with everything we do, Jeffrey. It all relates, doesn't it? Across society, you know, the issues are interrelated. You cannot separate one from the other. So, it's it's about it's about looking after the earth. It's about looking after the people. It's about looking after society. It's looking after the community. You know, it's from the big picture to the little picture. Yep. It does not change. The relationship is intimate. And the whole concept of a global war uh, on drugs. It, yes. Well, that was always big picture anyway, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yep. But now we know it's a global war on providing money for guns. Hmm. Anyway. Okay, it goes on to say, wounds left by the drug war go far beyond the roughly 20.3 million people who, who have a substance use disorder in the US. The campaign, which by some estimates costs more than $1 trillion, also exacerbated racial divisions and infringed on civil liberties in ways that um, utterly transformed American society. Frederic, with the Drug Policy Alliance, said the Black Lives Matter movement was inspired in part by cases that revealed a dangerous attitude toward drugs amongst police. Mm. In Derek Chauvin's murder trial, the guy that uh, killed yes. George Floyd, the former officer's defence claimed aggressive police tactics were justified because of small amounts of fentanyl in George Floyd's body. Critics described the attempt as an attempt to, quote, weaponize Floyd's substance use disorder and jurors found Chauvin guilty. Breonna Taylor, meanwhile, was shot and killed by police in her home during a drug raid. She wasn't a suspect in the case. Quote, we need to end the drug war, not just for our loved ones that are struggling with addiction, but we need to remove the excuse that that is why law enforcement gets to invade our space or kill us, Indeed. Frederick says. Um, you only have to look at the Philippines to know that that's absolutely true too. Yeah, yeah. well, the president's given police an open... Absolutely open slather. In fact, we'll pay you. 
yeah. on, a he- on per capita basis to shoot drug dealers in inverted commas. And don't fear any consequences. Yep. I've, I've got you. No, covered. no, yeah, well, I've got your back, yeah. said the president. The United States has waged aggressive campaigns against substance use before, most notably during alcohol prohibition in the 20s and 30s. The modern drug war began with a symbolic address to the nation by then President Richard Nixon on June the seventeenth, nineteen seventy one. Who who labelled it? Who who actually public identified it and publicly said, "Here yeah. we go. Yep, this yep. is the baby." And it was for political reasons. Yeah. yeah. Speaking for the White House, uh, Richard Nixon declared the federal government would now treat drug addiction as, quote, public enemy number one, mm. suggesting substance use might be vanquished once and for all. And he's quoted as saying, in order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. His speech uh, marked the symbolic start of the modern drug war. In the decades that followed, Democrats and Republicans have embraced ever tougher laws penalising people. It was almost like it became a competition. Who could could out-toughen. Yeah, who could be tougher than the other. And to be honest, um, now President Biden was heavily involved in um, In those anti-drug users' legislations, yeah. His record's not too too good. Studies show uh, from the outset drug laws were implemented with a stark racial bias, leading to unprecedented levels of mass incarceration for black and brown men. As recently as 2018, black men were nearly six times more likely than whites to be locked up in state or federal correctional facilities, according to the US Justice Department. Researchers have long concluded the pattern has far-reaching impacts on black families, making it much harder to find employment and housing, while also preventing many people of colour with drug records from even being able to vote. In a 1994 interview in Harper's Magazine, uh, former Nixon advisor John Ehrlichman suggested that racial animus was amongst the motives shaping the drug war. Quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the Vietnam War or be black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they gave said. it a red hot go, though. <laughs> but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalising both heavily, we could severely disrupt those communities. Despite those concerns, Democrats and Republicans <clears throat> partnered on the drug war decade after decade, approving ever more severe laws, creating new state and federal bureaucracies to interdict drugs and funding new armies of police and federal agents. At times, the fight on America's streets resembled an actual war, especially on poor communities and communities of colour. Indeed. Police units carried out drug raids with military-style hardware that included body armour, assault weapons and tanks equipped with battering rams. What we need is another D-Day, not another Vietnam, not another limited war fought on the cheap, declared then-Senator Joe Biden in 1989. Mm. Biden, who chaired the influential Senate Justice Judiciary Judiciary Committee, Mm. later co-authored the controversial 1994 crime bill that helped fund a vast new complex of state and federal prisons, which remains the largest in the world. On the campaign trail in 2020... Biden stopped short of repudiating his past drug policy ideas, but said he now believes no American should be incarcerated for addiction. He also endorsed national decriminalisation of marijuana. While few policy experts believe the drug war will come to a conclusive end anytime soon, the end of bipartisan backing for punitive drug laws is a significant development. Mm, Indeed. The article goes on, more drugs bring more deaths and more doubts. Adding to pressure for change is the fact that despite half a century of interdiction, America's streets are flooded with more potent and more dangerous drugs than ever before, primarily methamphetamines and the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Quote, back in the day when we would see 5, 10 kilograms of meth 
that would make you a hero if you made a seizure like that, said Matthew Donoghue, the head of operations at the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration. It goes on to say, now it's common for us to see 100, 200, 300 kilogram seizures of meth, he added. It doesn't make a dent to the price. Efforts to disrupt illegal supplies suffered yet and suffered yet another major blow last year after Mexican officials repudiated drug war tactics and began blocking most interdiction efforts south of the US-Mexico border. Uh, it's a national health threat. It's a national safety threat, Donahue told NPR. Last year, drug overdoses hit a devastating new record of 90,000 deaths, according to preliminary data from the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention. Wow. That's obscene, 90,000. That's unbelievable. The drug war failed to stop the opioid epidemic. Critics say the effectiveness of the drug war model has been called into question for another reason. The nation's prescriptive... A prescription opioid epidemic. Beginning in the late 1990s, some of the uh, nation's large drug companies and pharmacy chains invested heavily in the opioid business. Well, why wouldn't you? There's a lot of money to, money be, to made be made from it. We've been saying that forever. Yeah. State and federal regulators and law enforcement failed to intervene as communities were flooded with legally manufactured painkillers, including OxyContin. Quote, they were utterly failing to take into account diversion, said West Virginia Republican Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, who sued the DEA for not curbing opioid production quotas sooner. Um, it's as close to a criminal act as you can find, Morrissey said. Hear, hear. One of the epicentres of the prescription opioid epidemic was Huntington, a small city in West Virginia along the Ohio River, hit hard by the loss of factory and coal jobs. It was pretty bad. 81 million opioid pills over an eight-year period came into this area, said Courtney Hessler, a reporter with the Huntington Herald-Dispatch. Public health officials say one in ten residents in the area still battle addiction. Hessler herself wound up in foster care after her mother struggled with opioids. In recent months, she has reported uh, on a landmark opioid trial that will test who, if anyone, will be held accountable for drug policies that fail to keep families and communities safe. I think it's important. You know, there are thousands of children that grew up the way that I did, Hessler said. These people want answers. During dozens of interviews, community leaders told NPR that places like Huntington, West Virginia and Brownsville, New York, will recover from the drug war and rebuild. They predicted many parts of the country will accelerate the shift towards a public health model for addiction, treating drug users more often like patients with a chronic illness and less often like criminals. Mm. But ending wars is hard and stigma surrounding drug use, heightened by half a century of punitive policies, remains deeply entrenched. Aaron Hinton, the act activist in Brownsville, said it may take decades to unwind the harm done to his neighbourhood. Quote, it's one step forward, two steps back, Hinton said. But I remain hopeful. Why? Because what else am I going to do? Quite. What a powerful article. Yeah, and the fact is. that there's a change in sentiment, if not actual... That, yes, that actually, that article sounds more like the norm now, doesn't mm. it? Rather than like a very 
if you like, left wing oriented story. It sounds more like a, more me- a media, middle of the road, yeah. practical, pragmatic solution to this so called drug war. There's the war of people who that use There drugs. is actually legislation being put before yep. uh, Congress to and consider. Completely flies in the face of what Ned Sasselge is saying, if you think about it. Yeah. yeah Sasselge is saying, look, you know, this, uh, these drugs are just so damaging. They are damning. But drugs don't have any um, – any, they're not sentient beings. I've said no. this over the last couple of weeks. They are not sentient beings. Drugs cannot do things. It is people that do things. They're not yeah. taking up arms and fighting a war. They are not. They are just providing the money for the arms. It's just ludicrous. Let's – Get ourselves back together and get on track. Start thinking rationally about this drug war and rational drug policies and tell Sazelja that just because his Liberal Party doesn't mean he has to be a fascist. It's not essential. It's not par for the course. And how about some evidence-based policy, which we keep hearing about? Wouldn't that be a beautiful and a wonderful thing? It would be. And it would make for, you know, an entirely different... Conversation changes people's minds. Evidence-based policy making, yeah. yeah, decision making. We don't have it, and pretty much at any level, when it comes to talking about drug policy, we're talking about people's fears, and we say once again about their moral viewpoint yeah. of the use, or, or be, being intoxicated. Yeah, and yeah. other things come into the discussion. Which such a lot comes into the discussion. Yeah, but it is going to be very hard. I think the conclusion to that, as much as you can be hopeful. There's a lot to overcome, isn't there? There is a lot to Decades overcome. Of... And, and people who often are brought up whose parents and whose siblings or whose relatives are drug dependent or are drug users often feel that it's the drugs to blame because they don't want to put blame on their Parent, parent or, sibling, yeah. whatever. That's but in point. fact, blame is not necessarily to be laid. We don't have to blame anyone. No. Drugs don't do anything. People do things. Why do people do things? Because they do. Well, you, I mean, you know, it is just, it's just there. And I mean, apropos of that, what other behaviours of your parent or sibling or whatever do you challenge? Mm. Do you ask them why they think the way they do? why they love the way they love, Mm -hmm. why they think the way they do about uh, coal seam gas, about fracking, about the environment, about Black Lives Matter. Why, you know, do they think about are they hopeless in that situation or are they hopeful in that situation? Mm. Do you question their morals or do you just question their use of drugs? Think about that for a second instead of thinking about that drugs are bad. Yeah. It's so much more nuanced and complex. It, it is. It's a yes. That's a perfect term for it, Jeffrey. Nuanced. You need to think about the fact that there are lots of things involved in why people use drugs, not just that one. Because they do really. Exactly. That's about as you know. It's because they shouldn't. That's about as silly as saying that, I suppose. And and I apologise for that. But for so many years, we've had you know, drugs are bad. Yeah. Don't do drugs, just say no. Yeah. Well, they do. People use drugs. 
for a whole range of reasons. So it's just saying that they don't, that yeah. they shouldn't, is not going to change their behaviour. And it hasn't worked. We've, it hasn't worked. Yeah. And if people, we want people to change their behaviour, we're going to have to provide services that will give them a hand because it's not an easy thing to do. No. And that because it's so nuanced, because there's such a diverse range of reasons why people use drugs and why they keep on using drugs, that they need a lot of work and a lot of talking a lot of strategies to change that behaviour. And a lot of choice. An a lot of choice. There yeah. is no one um, one treatment, no one therapy that will stop people no. using drugs. No. no, it's a good point. Okay, let's uh, have a song. Or uh, music. This is Eminem and Sing for the Moment. Okay. That was uh, Eminem and uh, Sing for the Moment. It's about 21 minutes to noon. And we've got one more story, Marion, which I think is actually really quite interesting when you think how um, drug use and drug users it's, are represented. It is a good story, Jeffrey. Can we just inf- let listeners know, Jeffrey's going to put a piece on the website called uh, Sufferers of Chronic Pain Have Long Been Told It's All in Their Head. We now know that's wrong. And Jeffrey says he'll put that on the website, but it's a really good informative piece. And I really would exhort you to have a look at it if you have chronic pain or if you know of somebody who has chronic pain because it's really quite informative. There's some really interesting information. And it's really there. interesting. So it'll be on the website uh, after this afternoon. Yep. So have a look. Um, and anyway, we'll go into this article now, but it's just a good piece. So have yep. a look at it if you're interested. All right. This is by Eric Deggins, uh, npr.org again. How TV dramas informed and also misinformed perceptions of the war on drugs. David Simon created two of television's most groundbreaking series about the failure of the war on drugs set in the neighbourhoods of Baltimore. HBO's The Corner and oh, The oh, Wire, uh-huh. which is one of the greatest TV shows ever yeah, made. Yeah, The Wire's good, isn't it? Still, even as he allows that those, uh, that those shows, with their visceral look at the intersection of race, policing, violence and tragedy, may have helped people question five decades of failed drug policy, Simon says he remains, quote, a cockeyed pessimist on the question of whether the war will ever end. That's interesting that he's mm. pessimistic. The way most American television shows d- depict that effort is a major reason why. This year marks the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's famous declaration of a, quote, war on drugs, a global strategy by the US federal government to crack down on the illegal drugs trade. Critics suspected it was also an excuse to send law enforcement groups after groups Law enforcement after groups critical of Nixon's policies, as was said mm. in the previous article. Especially, Especially anti-war liberals and, and black blacks. people, yeah, which, yeah. yeah. They, they were targeted. To trace how scripted TV shows have impacted the public's view of the war on drugs, I spoke to a range of people in the industry, from the executive producer of Miami Vice to the author of the book that inspired Netflix's prison drama, Orange is the New Black. Most said they believed scripted television shows had a serious and sometimes unrecognised impact on public attitudes simply by encouraging audiences to empathise with some parts of the process while keeping more troubling aspects firmly out of view. Mm. Quote, entertainment is probably much more effective in terms of changing people's values and attitudes and beliefs and their behaviour, even the news programming, says Joanna, Johanna Blackley, Managing Director of the Norman Lear Centre at the USC Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism, a public policy centre focused on the study of entertainment, media and society. She co-authored a study of primetime television's depiction of both the war on drugs and the war on terror, released in 2011. When you're tuning into news, you're often trying to find news that represents 
to you a world that you understand, she adds. But that's not why people tune into entertainment programming. It kind of gets under that radar. Indeed. Shows glorified the thin blue line. As a long-time outspoken opponent of the aggressive arrest and imprisonment efforts central to the war on drugs, the Emmy Award, uh, the Emmy-winning TV producer David Simon sees two big problems with typical police dramas. First, he says, they depict situations where cops, however flawed or troubled, are society's stalwart defence against lawless drug dealers and addicts. He calls that the thin blue line narrative. Secondly, such shows are almost always written from the perspective of law enforcement. As any good producer can tell you, where you place the camera is where the audience will empathise. I don't think this is a correct... No, I don't think we can correct this narrative. It's just too much fun, Simon says ruefully. For normative America, for the America that isn't vulnerable to these enforcement policies, it's a modern-day Western. Drug War Blues and Miami Hughes made a hit combo. It wasn't until 1984 when NBC unveiled a little series called Miami Vice that TV's war on drugs got a serious makeover. Oscar-nominated director Michael Mann, who served as executive producer of Miami Vice, said the iconic show's premise was inspired by forfeiture laws allowing police to use any assets seized in drug arrests. Tossing telegenic stars Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas as James Sonny Crockett and Ricardo Rico Tubbs, a throbbing theme song from Jan Hammer and a setting in the sexy, mysterious world of Miami's underworld, I knew had a TV classic. <laughs> Man says the show, initially, entitled, initially called Gold Coast, had storylines based on scuttlebutt they heard while hanging out in Miami clubs with actual criminals. Quote, Miami was really Casablanca, says Mann. It was the northern banking capital for the whole of South American drug trade, just this gorgeous Caribbean twilight zone in which anything seemed possible. Cultural critic Nelson George says Miami Vice combined the story of the cool outlaw, the stalwart law enforcement officer, into one mesmerising tale, rather, Americans loved gangsters, he adds. The war on drugs, that's the American narrative that we're fighting our best against these these tired. The audience can also enjoy the glamour and the perks of having outsider figures who can best dress and dress better than the average cop, have nicer cars and better soundtracks. Now that's sexy. And it was a sexy show, yeah, wasn't it? Was it was indeed, yep. um, The next heading is the addicted protagonist humanised drug users. In the late 1990s, TV producer Neil Bayer pitched a bold storyline to NBC executives. Dr June Carter, a popular character paid by Noah Weil on NBC's hit medical drama ER, would develop an addiction to painkillers, get caught and have to go into rehab. Bayer, a Harvard-trained doctor, was working as co-executive on the show, co-executive producer on the show. He knew the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse was passionate about ideas that addiction could be a brain disease. Quote, that hadn't been done before with a main character, a lead character, showing that he wasn't a bad person or evil, uh, says Bayer of the storyline, which became a landmark moment in the sixth season of the show. We really worked on the notion that it wasn't a weakness of personality, it wasn't a lack of willpower, it was some kind of function of your brain and its interaction with alcohol and drugs. It didn't, 
it did it likely didn't hurt that whilst John Carter was handsome, white, male doctor, markedly different from the non-white poor people often stereotyped as dangerous addicts in more conventional shows. Mm. In the early 2000s, a few series in the newly emerging world of cable TV also humanised drug users and looked a bit more sceptically at law enforcement. Simon's The Corner, 2000, focused on a family in West Baltimore torn apart when both parents become addicted to drugs and their son becomes a dealer. The Wire, made in 2000, or started in 2002, showed how the drug trade became the only employer in poverty-stricken neighbourhoods that cops often viewed as enemy territory. On FX, The Shield, 2002, depicted how a drug task force in Los Angeles, given wide latitude to break any rule in cracking down on drugs, birthed a corrupt cop capable of murdering another officer. Sean Ryan, creator of The Shield, says there was likely an additional reason that public sentiment regarding the war on drugs shifted towards leniency and understanding for users back then. Quote, I think it was easy for white America to have one point of view about the drug war when it was mostly hitting minority communities. What really changed in the mid-2000s was the opioid epidemic that mm. began to affect people, especially white people, in rural communities. And the minute someone in your community is dealing with these problems, you tend to look at the problem differently. Absolutely. The minute it becomes personal, Geoffrey. Racial empathy and justice gaps persist. Despite advances in a more nuanced portrayals, in more nuanced portrayals, research showed TV still wasn't providing an accurate picture of drug enforcement. In 2011, the 40th anniversary of the war on drugs, the Lear Centre released an anal analysis looking at episodes of popular shows like Law and Order and CSI Crime Scene Investigation. The study, called The Primetime War on Drugs and Terror, found these shows failed to reflect how non-white people are disproportionately arrested and punished in drug enforcement. According to the study, black people were 13% of drug users, but 43% of those jailed for drug violations. Another analysis the Lear Centre released last year with Colour of Change, Normalising Injustice, found a similar dynamic. These series may have been showing that the war drug war wasn't working, but they weren't depicting an important reason why it was failing, disproportional punishment given to people of colour and the poor. TV producers may have been caught in a catch-22. If they show how often black people are arrested, they could be accused of stereotyping. Still, not reflecting that reality depicts a criminal justice system much more even-handed than reality. Quote, we found a real reluctance to deal with any kind of racial issues in the criminal justice system, said Lear, uh, the Lear's uh, Centre's Blakely, Blackley, who worked on both studies. It just slaps you in the face the degree to which they avoid the topic. After Copaganda, news stories reflect growing cynicism. As the public becomes more cynical about the war on drugs, TV shows have emerged to reflect that attitude. Piper Kerman, who wrote the book on which Netflix prison drama Orange is the New Black is based, was unexpectedly caught up in the war on drugs. As shown in the series, she was prosecuted for helping to move drug money overseas, years after she had built a new life. Now she calls the most filmed entertainment about criminal justice copaganda, pushing the perspective of law enforcement or policy makers. Kerman says her story wasn't that unique, except that she was white, from a middle-class environment and attended college. The Netflix show, created by Genji 
Cohen, Drew Raves for how it depicted the reality of how many women of colour were in prison for drug crimes connected to poverty, lack of employment, opportunity or lack of education. The best thing that Genji did was uh, de- decline to follow this sort of Tony Soprano, Walter White, big anti-hero story and create this world where you had many different female protagonists who get their time in the sun, Kerman says. That's why the show was so resonant with audiences. That departure from the big white male anti-hero. Cynicism about American institutions intentionally harming black Americans helped inspire FX's criminal drama Snowfall. Walter Mosley, an acclaimed novelist who writes for the show, says director-executive producer John Singleton created Snowfall to dramatise allegations that the CIA deliberately helped import drugs into south-central Los Angeles, sparking the first crack epidemic. John came in and said, quote, John came in and said, this is the story of my hood where I was raised, adds Mosley of Singleton, who died in 2019. There are millions of people who know what we're saying is true, but who've never seen it on television. This summer, The Wire's David Simons begins filming a new opus about the consequences of the drug war, a limited series for HBO about corrupt cops called We Own This City, based on the true story of how an elite plainclothes task force in Baltimore stole money and drugs for years. Simon says the series outlines what happens when a police force rewarded for mass arrests in big drug seizures forget how to actually solve crimes like murder, rape and assault. Wow. Look forward to that one. It's important, isn't it? The drug war basically destroys policing, said Simon. Are you listening out there, coppers? They look upon the neighbourhoods not as places they're supposed to protect and serve, but as places places where they hunt and pr- hunt prey and their avarice is rewarded. I think this speaks volumes for so many other countries too, Geoffrey. Mm. Nelson George, the cultural critic, says TV's depiction of the American war on drugs failed to capture the truth because many series simply couldn't convey a troubling and more fundamental reality. Quote, even though people want to ignore it, you can't stop the drug business in America by enforcing the law, he says. Americans like to get high. Oh, well, duh. What a surprise. And that is the reality that America doesn't want to face. And I think that speaks volumes for Australia, England. You know, name me a place where people don't like to get high. I think it's a global phenomenon. It's It's part of the human condition. It's part of the human condition. And we've been saying that for years too. Simply because when you find, you know, they discovered opiates, Jeffrey, and they went, oh, this cures pain. Yeah. What kind of pain? All sorts of pain. Every kind of pain. But in what form does it, you know, well, I help pain? Found, it's just crazy. I hope people found some interest in that show because I certainly found it a very interesting perspective. And um, for anyone who hasn't seen David Simon's The Wire, um, it is a highly recommended series um, that really does get to the nitty-gritty of, of the impact of the war on drugs in American City, in Baltimore. Oh, I must admit, I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? No, oh. no, no. I, well, don't have HBO, I don't have Netflix, I don't have... Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it just sounds really interesting. And it's, I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about, 
you know, the, how we receive our messages through, uh, I mean, the criminalising of drugs and how it's then transported into um, what we see in the media is really important because that propaganda, oh, wow, that propaganda really does come across in very, um, in beautiful ways, you know, very highly colourful and dramatic ways through TV comedy and through drama it's fabulous stuff but it doesn't always tell the truth but mm. you do get messages that slip under your you know slip under your consciousness and go into the back of your head and say well you know is this reflects reality when in fact it, it doesn't i think the development of a lot more shows on cable tv has given it's producers right. the yeah. opportunity to, to expand, expand their, their yeah. way they think and yeah. the way they portray Reality, which is a good thing, absolutely yeah. couldn't could only be a good thing. I thought, I would say. So yeah, we had a couple of uh, lengthy uh, pieces today, but you know we are always trying to get people to think about the big picture. Absolutely, and I'm sorry if we anybody sent any texts. Um, we have I haven't been able to receive them because my phone's dead, but nonetheless, I feel like we've had a great show today. It's been terrific. So. Thank you, Jeffrey, for putting those stories together. Well, and I just exhort people you. to say, look, we're on True Double X um, Public Radio. Um, join or support, you know, support um, become a member of Two Double X. Become get involved in public radio. It's really important. Uh, voices like ours wouldn't be heard if it wasn't for public radio. So it's the only place you will hear this kind of – well, certainly an hour and a half of our voices anyway, and let alone the content that we provide for you. And it's a great way to keep in touch with the services Karma is providing. Indeed um, it is. So and don't forget Reach, Teach, Treat if you know anyone yourself or anyone yeah, needs Hep C treated. the Muragadi, Muragadi um, group. workshop, yep. which will be on July the 29th, I think it was. The Loxone training. The Loxone training, which is July the 27th. Uh, six two five three three six four three for the, all three of those network groups to network make inquiries groups, or book a spot to make inquiries yeah. or to book a spot all and six two three oh six three four four that takes us out from this week's show thanks again Marion yeah um, thank you Jeffrey it was been a lovely day and thank you listeners we'll be back again next week we'll see leave you next week take care of yourselves yeah the theme song we will bye golden brown bye.